Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 185 for February 26th, 2009, HMAC. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by GoToMeeting. For a month of unlimited online meetings absolutely free, go to gotomeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that talks about all this security stuff, which lately has been quite a bit of security stuff. Our host, Steve Gibson, is here. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. We have another week crammed with news. This is the, 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 this one will be like your original concept of security now, which was less the sort of the security school that I've had for the last or been, been the, the security school that I've been holding for the last three and a half years and more uh, security news, you know, because we've got a whole bunch of interesting stuff to talk about that is uh, has happened in the last uh, week, actually. Well, and don't I, I don't mean to downplay security uh, at a school because that's been really important to us to understanding the security news, you know, the, having the ground of being to understand. Oh, and I'm, you know, I, I love the school. And in fact, one of the consistent things that I read in people's feedback uh, at grc.com slash feedback uh, is that people say every single week. I learned something. I mean, even, you know, IT professionals, security professionals, you know, everybody says that you'll say something, you know, you and Leo talking or or the the content will have something I didn't know. And so, yeah. you know, that's really valuable. Yeah, I think this is for me anyway, it's an education. It's college. It's college level <laughs> education and security. But because it's changing, I mean, there's some stuff that's eternal, but there's also stuff that's changing all the time. So, well, and the, the, the show, the title of this one would be. uh HMAX, we're going to talk about um, hashed message authentication codes. That's oh the last bit of technology, <laughs> sort of fundamental technology that we need in order to understand, you know, essentially to have our toolkit complete so we can then really get a grip on how SSL works. Um, and I was thinking of doing that week after next, but I'm going to push it back another two weeks because of something that has happened this week that I want to give more that we'll talk about briefly, but I want to get more coverage to, I want to give it its own, its own podcast about the, uh, the new flexibility that Microsoft has added to the windows auto run where you can like individually granularly control what is allowed to run and what isn't. Oh, well, before we uh, get going on that, if you don't mind, I'd like to say hello to our friends at Astaro, the great folks who make the Astaro security gateway. Every month, we'd like to remind you that Astaro still is there, still is securing your business. In fact, we had a great uh, email uh, from an Astaro user last week. I don't know if you remember that. A guy who uh, yep. was an IT guy in enterprise and was using Astaro to uh, secure his whole enterprise. And that's the idea. Astaro is a UTM. It stands for Unified Threat Management, an all-in-one box. Really not much big. Well, it depends on which Astaro you get, and there are a variety of them. 
the security, the Star Security Gateway. But uh, the uh, the one I have is essentially the same, roughly the same size as a router, except it's in steel. I mean, it's a good looking metal steel rack mountable. You could tell this stuff is professional grade. Inside, the top of the line, best in class in both commercial and open software to protect your enterprise. Of course, you know, the kind of things you'd expect, state-of-the-art firewall, for instance, with the packet, stateful packet inspection and all those, all the things, all the buzzwords. Also, complete intrusion protection. Very handy. Uh, There are three antiviruses. There's two for email and one for the web. Every email that comes into your enterprise is thoroughly cleansed. You get anti-spyware. You get complete control of how your users are using it, which includes uh, content filtering. You can control peer-to-peer usage, you know, BitTorrent, things like that, instant message usage. There's some really convenient things, too. VPN, all, all flavors of VPN, including IPsec, uh, L2TP over IPsec, PPTP tunneling with SSL, which is great because it makes it very straightforward to use. Uh, in fact, I think this this is the only UTM appliance on the market with such a wide range of uh, VPN and remote access solutions. I mean, they're really they've really focused on that. Also, great encryption, you know, transparent encryption from your user's point of view, using S mine or open S or open PGP. That's what I use, open PGP. So it encrypts or signs all outgoing email, decrypts and signs, verifies all incoming email completely transparently. Uh, and th- these are the kinds of things that you really want in a UTM. So give it a try. You can, you can call them right now and get a free demo unit in your business. 877-427-8276. Easier to remember. 877, the number four, Astaro. A-S-T-A-R-O. If you're a non-commercial user or you just want to, you know, see what Astaro can do in your home, it is free to download. In fact, one of the most popular VMware appliances is an Astaro set, a complete Astaro setup that you can put on your own, you know, beige box, your own PC, and give it a shot. And Astaro's done something really cool with V ever since V seven. The base license, all subscriptions, and Astaro up to date are free to non commercial users. It is limited to ten IPs and ten users and a thousand concurrent connections. It's the kind of thing we could do if if I wanted. I could do in the office here, but but basically the idea is you don't have to purchase if you're a home user the subscription, which is normally seventy nine euros. It's yours free. Try Astaro. Try it in your enterprise. 877, the number four, Astaro, or go to astaro.com slash security now. The more I know, the more I'm glad I've got Astaro running in my office. I can tell you that. All right, Steve, let's uh, let's get to the voluminous security news today. You sent me notes. It's two pages of stuff. Well, yeah, mostly just little some things I wanted to quote exactly from their the reference source, um, and mostly things where I just had the needed to have the details in front of me. So I figured, you know, mostly I wanted to give you some sense for where we were as we move through this, so that you know you're not saying, "Are we done yet? Are we, are well, we done yet?" And it's very handy because I could put it in the wiki, which I have I'm doing right now, so that if you go to wiki.twit.tv, you'll get a complete list of you know detailed list of all the notes, and I'm sure you put those in your show notes at grc.com as well. So we've got security news, we've got errata, and uh, my always interesting, that I try to find a fun spinwrite testimonial. Um, uh, there we had, well, first of all, for Windows users, we had an interesting out-of-band update 
Microsoft called it a non-security security update. Um, and in fact, they in their own FAQ, that they even asked themselves the question, well, isn't that a contradiction in terms to have a non-security security update? Anyway, what they've done is it turns out that some time ago, and I looked around, I've got the, the prior knowledge base number, but it's been updated since, so I can't tell when the original publication date was. But sometime in the past, Microsoft realized that auto-run disabling, which, you know, is standard practice. We've talked about it many times. It's one of the, you know, sort of the, the first things a guru does when they're wanting to bolt down a system is they turn off auto run. That's the feature of Windows where if you put it, for example, most commonly a CD in the CD drive, if in the root of the CD directory, there's an auto run.inf file, Windows will look in there for instructions and execute code, typically also contained on the CD. That's been a problem. For example, this was the way that Sony installed their rootkit um, into Windows machines, the infamous Sony rootkit that we talked about years ago. Um, so, you know, and in general, savvy Windows users dislike the idea that, that you know, their system is going to run something without their explicit intent for that to happen. The flip side is that neophytes, you know, people who are not all security conscious and and are maybe more trusting, um, it's advantageous for them not to have to go dig around in the contents of a CD in order to find what it is it needs to run. I mean, I'm often opening up the auto run INF file manually, looking at it, seeing what it is that it wants to run, and then going and running it manually because I've told my system, don't do this for me. Um, but that's a lot to ask typical users to do. So, you know, again, it's a it's a feature that Windows has. Many people disable it. Well, it turns out that uh, until this prior update was, uh, the security patch was added, it wasn't working right. Um, and so quoting from Microsoft's new announcement. They said, Microsoft is announcing the availability of an update that corrects a functionality feature that can help customers in keeping their systems protected. The update corrects an issue that prevents the no drive type auto run registry key from functioning as expected. (laughs) And a little bit later, it says the updates offered in this article correctly disable the auto run features. These features were not correctly disabled If you followed previously published advice, the updates that are offered in this article have been distributed to the following systems through Windows Automatic Update and blah, blah, blah. So so here's the deal. Um, This has now been re-released as a Windows Update fix, which it wasn't before, which meant that unless users were, were aware of this non-automatic update sort of published on the side update, their auto run had some holes in it. And from, from poking around, it appears to have been network shares, which, which that is, you know, attached network drives could have auto run functionality and would have, even if you thought you had turned that off. So, so I want to talk about this in detail in two weeks because it turns out what they've done is they've really sort of bumped up the granularity of this so that users will be able to 
to di- automatically disable auto run on drives of unknown type, on removable drives, on network drives, on CD-ROMs, on RAM disks, and all drives individually, which I think is very cool. For example, you know, I would definitely want to, in my case, I, and I think many users' cases, they want to just di- d- disable it across the board. But for example, that we've talked about um, the the um, the removable thumb drives where you stick them in the computer and they contain some code that runs when you insert them. Well, I really dislike that. And so, for example, it'd be possible to disable that while at, while leaving CD auto run enabled by using this new granularity feature. Does that but even they, uh, count for those U3 drives as well? Yes, exactly. Um, That's the ones uh, that are most scary, of course. Yeah, now yeah. they look like two different they have two different profiles they have a cd profile which is the way they get the auto run to function and then they also have a regular mass storage profile so so again you would be able to to take control and and make this thing work just exactly the way you want to they've added some new registry keys and in fact they've with this update there's an, an another key that they've created in the registry which is is called honor auto run setting which is set to one by default what and and the problem is microsoft realized that maybe people had gotten used to the buggy way that it was working and there ought to be a way to disable the the fixed version and have it fall back to the buggy version so that it so that the automatic update which everyone's probably going to get now and in fact, received out of cycle. They sent it, you know, yesterday on Tuesday when we were uh, the uh, two days before the date of this podcast, the day before we we're recording this today on Wednesday. So, so Microsoft is concerned since they moved this thing from you got to go looking on Microsoft's site to get it to auto update status where everyone's going to get it. Now, what's going to happen is it and it does require a reset because they changed this shell 32.dll, which is a fundamental intrinsic um, core of Windows. So you'll definitely be needing to restart your machine. So since it's going to be automatic update and fix the problem, suddenly behavior will change and people might have been dependent upon the old behavior. So Microsoft has added a feature that allows you to disable the improved fixed behavior. Anyway, in two weeks, we're going to go over this in detail. All people have to worry or have to... um, uh, think about in, in now is that when they update themselves, Windows will be functioning correctly. That is the way they probably intended Windows to be running anyway. And so what we'll be able to do is we're going to explore in two weeks how you can back off from that blanket auto run if you want to allow some specific auto run behaviors and essentially with a great deal of granularity, tune it so that it works exactly the way you want it to. That's really nice. That's a nice uh, update to be able to to say this, but not this. I yeah. Think. I mean, I know yeah. you would turn it all off, but, you know, it's it's handy if you put an audio CD in and it starts to play. I don't think that's necessarily a security risk. Well, or, for example, if you if you yourself, like, want to use the U3 drives. Yes, right. It, I mean, some know, people or, want them. Right. Or or you have an, you, you know, you, you're a little bit more of a guru, and when you plug a, 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 a USB in that has a program you can create an autorun.inf file. Right. So you want to say, look, I don't want CDs 
to run by themselves, but I do want USB devices. Right. So it'll it'll allow people to to tune it so that it works just the way they want. Frederic, uh, our office manager has, and I I encouraged her to do this. She has a U3 drive with uh, a password manager on it. She uses RoboForm. They make yep. a version for U3. Actually, they make even a version. I think that even if you don't have a U3 drive, that will auto run. So she keeps her passwords. They're secure. This is why I encourage her to do this. She plugs it into any machine that she's going to be using. Now she has access to her passwords. And that's a very nice, safe system for her. That's something that's good to have. Yep, exactly. And so you would not want to disable that on a system where you would otherwise want to bolt some other parts of it down. Precisely, yeah. Um, Yeah. So anyway, two weeks from now, we'll go into that in in painstaking detail. I wanted to mention that some recent changes, this is sort of an obscure one, but it no doubt has an intersection with some of our listeners. Um, Some recent changes to version seven of my favorite Unix, which is the FreeBSD version of Unix, um, caused a new security problem in the Telnet daemon. The, you know, Telnet is the, is the remote console protocol. Um, I would be surprised if any security now listeners had their telnet server wide open and exposed to the internet that is um it's a it's a common attack vector uh telnet runs on port 23 by default and uh you know if nothing else you'd want to move it to a different port because you know port 23 scans have have been historically quite common and and you know a brute force attack on the on the login credentials is something that could be happening in the background with you never knowing it anyway what happened is even without as i understand it even without logging in there is some there's some some, some telnet level commands that allow you to con- configure environment variables such as you know baud rate and and other telnet protocol aspects which you you can imagine you need to do like right off the bat and these changes in in version 7 of freebsd introduced unfortunately a remote code execution exploit which would allow somebody who just found your telnet daemon exposed to to cause code that they had somehow gotten onto the server through different means to be executed so for example if you also had an ftp file upload capability that allowed you to accept files but you'd been you've been safe about like not allowing them to be executed well this would allow that to be bypassed. So the patches are available. I just wanted to notify anybody, any of our listeners using FreeBSD version 7, uh, if by any chance they use Telnet in a way that is has any internet-facing connectivity, uh, you really want to fix that immediately because that's potentially bad. And, you know, scans for Telnet are, are common and easily implemented. Um, in other news, we talked two weeks ago, which was uh, the our, our podcast after the um, uh, Patch Tuesday. We've had another instance of what's called Exploit Wednesday. Uh, patch Tuesday, of course, is Microsoft's um, uh, patching Tuesday, where they they issue all their updates. And we had some big ones. We had a you may remember a critical update to IE seven. Well, less than a week. After that was released, the patch was reverse engineered, as now unfortunately often happens, and an exploit has been developed, which is in the wild. The current implementation of this is email containing 
a Word doc file, which itself contains an embedded ActiveX object. So when you when you receive the email, if you attempt to open the Word document, and there'll be some social engineering thing which will induce an, a naive person, a trusting person, to open the attached document. After all, uh, aren't documents safe? Uh, no, because they can have an embedded ActiveX object. This one um, causes IE to visit a malicious site which runs a script, and there's my favorite S word, mm-hmm. uh, and it, the vulnerability in IE7 is leveraged by the script to cause um, malware to be downloaded. It installs a backdoor in the system, which is persistent, and also sends a load of confidential information from your machine off to a server in China. So uh, you don't want that to happen. Yeah. I just want, I know that everyone will have updated their windows by now. But the problem, of course, is that corporations uh, often deliberately delay patching their systems by policy because they want to vet them. And, you know, because there's been a history of Microsoft right. patches messing Screw things up. everything up, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, this is this is bad, and uh, you know all of that um, the down adept configur worm stuff. I mean, which is becoming a huge problem. This, this is a problem which was this was a an exploit that's been patched in Windows last October, October of '08, and here we are, February, you know, toward the end of February '09, and th- that demonstrates that there is a huge gap between the availability of a patch. And and the and the time that these systems really get themselves updated again. I know it's not our listeners, but it's it's certainly somehow it's people who don't have Windows Update uh, enabled and are or are not restarting their machines or or whatever. One way or another, these problems are persisting. And you know the fact that this down adept worm is causing such problems for a, something that was fixed in October demonstrates that there is this window of opportunity. So. You know, for that reason, patches like one that was that was issued on Patch Tuesday for IE7 are being reverse engineered and exploited. And these guys know they've got a big window of opportunity during which they're going to be able to install this junk on people's machines. Now, the AV um, guys are on top of it and the uh, antivirus um, updates will be catching this, too, even though Windows itself should be patched to avoid the vulnerability. Um, next bit of news is rather interesting. There are two distressing bills, one in the Senate. Oh, S. I know where you're going. Oh, boy. <laughs> and the other oh. is a House resolution, H.R. 1076. And it's it's you know, th- this is one of those where somebody really struggled to come up with an acronym. They wanted to call it the <laughs> Internet Safety Act. So safety is an acronym. This is for the worst s- acronym ever. I know. Stopping adults facilitating exploitation of today's youth. S A F E T Y. Stopping adults facilitating the exploitation of today's youth. Well, okay. Um, and the thing that annoys me is, you know, they're pulling the child porn card. That's you know their yeah. whole justification yeah. for this is, oh, you know, we got to protect our children. Well, we all agree we got to protect our children, but get a load of what how this thing is written. Quoting from the the bill and the these are identical uh legislation in both houses you know because they they both have to pass it then they go to conference and then you know the president signs it if he's asleep uh okay a provider 
of an electronic communication service or remote computing service shall retain for a period of at least two years all records. Okay, wait, I'm, before I go any further, let me say this applies to home, I want, because I want people to listen to this wording. This applies to everyone hearing this. Anybody with, with a Wi-Fi access point that uses DHCP, that distributes IPs automatically, businesses, homes, hotspots, I mean, it's unbelievably sweeping, this effects. That is, all of us end users must do the following. A provider of an electronic communication service or remote computing service shall retain for a period of at least two years all records or other information pertaining to the identity of a user of a temporarily assigned network address the service assigns to that user. Definition of, quote, electronic communication service from the prior sentence is any service which provides to users thereof the ability to send or receive wire or electronic communications, unquote. The U.S. Justice Department's position is that any service, quote, that provides others with means of communicating electronically qualifies. Wow. So that, so literally this proposed law gets not just AT&T, Comcast, Verizon, and so forth, you know, wired ISPs, you know, they're all using DHCP to give us our IP addresses at home, but public access points, protect, including protect, password-protected ones, um, individual small businesses, large corporations, libraries, schools, universities, and government agencies. If this law were to pass in its current form, and it's difficult for me to believe that it could because, you know, there's got to be some back push against this. Well, and this is not the first time they've tried something like this. This has been True, going on since 2006. there was about four years ago yeah. it was brought up. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so now here it is again. It's, it's, it's come back again. And essentially, you know, I mean, we've talked about the need, for example, for ISPs to log. But the idea of requiring a chain of logging, that is not only is the ISP logging that you have been given an IP, but this legislation as written requires for for you to log that you have given a NAT router IP to somebody, you know, who's using your Wi-Fi connection. I mean, it's just, you know, I mean... Interestingly, there's a simple way around this, and that is not use, not to use DHCP to assign IPs statically within even within your Wi-Fi network, which we know is able to be done by doing MAC address to IP association. In that case, it's not an automatic assignment, and you're no longer violating this bogus hope this never passes law. But it's there, and uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I, you know this. Uh, this is. Um something that's been a, uh, really around in conception since the mid-90s, uh, believe it or not, when the idea of data retention has been uh, proposed. And it closely mirrors a law that's already in effect in the European Union. Yes. Now, the EU doesn't require this home stuff. <laughs> and I think that, that was... Let's all hook a hard drive onto our, to our $49 crazy. router. And you know, like a, as you point out, this has nothing to do with child pornography. That's just the easy thing to say because nobody's going to say, well, I'm for child pornography. It's the hook. Exactly. Yeah. It, this is it, all about, and I'm sure this is written by the movie industry and the record industry who really want to use this to facilitate their lawsuits against people who are pirating. 
Yeah, they just have to. I mean, again, it's it's conceivable that an ISP would log so that the FBI under subpoena could say we need we 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 have criminals at this IP at this time. We need to know who they are. And so it's like, okay, I mean, I I can see on that scale it can make some sense. And we know that to some degree that's being done now. But to ask, I mean, the way this is written, to require anybody with a DHCP server, which is to say anyone with a router, even wired DHCP, because that's automatic assignment. This doesn't say wireless connections. It says any automatically assigned IP. Well, that's what most people use. So it's just crazy. <laughs> I think that whoever's writing these just is, is kind of clueless to be honest with you. Yeah. And well, the, their lobbyists, Washington? The lo- yeah. Washington. Well, Are yeah. you kidding? Clueless. The, the lobbyists come in and they say, you know, Hey buddy, you know, we gave you 10,000 for your campaign. We really think this is important. Please, you know, and, and beside you don't want to, don't want to expose children, children? to pornography. Uh, dude. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah you anyway. can't lose on that. It's funny because the-, the Democrat, uh, the member of Congress from, uh, um, she, I think she was from Colorado. Uh, one of the few Democrats who uh, supported this last time around um, is very active in children's issues. And so I think uh, I think what happens is sometimes they're fooled. And it, if you don't have a technical background, you may not yeah. really understand what's at stake and, uh, and yes. the difficulty of doing this and the consequences and the privacy implications. Well, and the only thing that's a concern is. We, you know, we would tend we want we would like to have faith in the idea that a bad law cannot happen, except we have the DMCA. Right. Uh, which demonstrates yeah. that bad laws do happen. Yeah. So mean, the like, solution is happen. for those of you who are listening, uh, who are in the United States, write your member of Congress. Just make sure they understand the technical issues involved here. <laughs> yeah. You know what they're I don't think you have to get into DHCP, but I think you might explain to them that as written, this law would require every home user to keep two years of logs, do you really think that's a good idea? Nudge, nudge. That's right. all you have to say. I'm glad you brought this up because it's I'm driving me crazy. Just nuts. Yeah. Um, we have a zero-day exploit in Adobe's Acrobat Reader, for which there is no patch. Um, and it's actively, exp- it's, it's actively being exploited in the wild. This was discovered uh, in the wild... So it's an it's a an update. It, it's a vulnerability that Adobe is now aware of. They've got a link on their site. Say yes, we know about this. Uh, we're not happy about it. Um, as a temporary workaround, if you disable guess what JavaScript uh, in Acrobat Reader, which you can do, um, that will that will be a a prevention for instances of the current problem, but not it doesn't really fix the underlying cause they have said that the most recent version of acrobat reader the most recent major version version 9 is where they are that it will not be until march 11th that they're able to get a patch out for version 9 of acrobat reader and another week after that march 18th before they're able to get version 7 and 8 patched for those users who are still on 7 and 8 and haven't moved up to 9 so there is a there's a unofficial DLL of it that's been created by a, 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 an independent researcher uh, that replaces the ACRO RD 32.dll the Acro Reader 32.dll. I don't recommend using you know non official DLLs from anybody, 
Um, I would say, um, you know, disabling JavaScript sounds like a good thing to do in Acrobat Reader if you're a person who uses Acrobat Reader um, often, or maybe just be extra cautious until this update. And we'll certainly advise everyone that um, that there is a new version available as soon as it is available. Um, it's you know, that's not good. The only cool thing is that our users of Sandboxy could simply make a configuration change in Sandboxy, which to using the forced option. I've got, for example, Eudora and Firefox and Internet Explorer, although I don't use IE very much any longer, uh, all tagged as forced programs. So any attempt to run them makes them run in a sandbox. You could simply do that to Acrobat Reader. When the when, when you click on a, a PDF in in your browser, it runs embedded in your browser, so it's automatically sandboxed by the by the browser being sandboxed, so it's contained within that container. But if you wanted to, you could just add the Acrobat Reader executable as a forced program. And in fact, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, PDFs are now a constant source of problems. We're hearing about security problems like this all the time. So I would absolutely consider adding Acrobat Reader just as a general safety measure if you're a user of Sandboxy on Windows, um, and then you're safe that way also. Always Sandboxy. It always comes back to that. It all, it's oh, just a, always it's a great tool. No script in Sandboxy and you're safe. And Leo? Yes. I got I'm jealous. Too. I know. I got my Kindle too. Mine's supposed to come any minute now. Um, it really shows every in, every um, uh, characteristic of being a second generation device. Yeah. yeah. They've got the battery life extended. Um, now you haven't had it long enough to really notice that, have you? Uh, no. no. Um, but so you very good point. Um, so you know that that's what they're they're talking about. The buttons are very clever. The old buttons rocked from an from a from a pivot inside toward the outside. And that would cause the big problem of any time you picked it up, someone would just sort of, you know, tend to squeeze the edge and that would cause a page turn. These buttons, as you'll see when you get yours later today, Leo, <laughs> they rock toward the inside. So oh. the but the button pivot is on the edge. And you cannot push it. It will not push if you just push on the edge. So they've they've flipped that around. And so it takes a little getting used to. I mean, basically, I was just so in love with my my version one Kindle that, you know, and I it became instinctual to use it. So so these buttons are very clever. They look a lot nicer. They're a lot smaller, but still easy when, when it's in your hand to press the button. And, and so you get used to after a while, you can sort of feel the... You can feel the little gap where the button meets the rest of the plastic. And so you sort of press there, rotating the button into the Kindle um, in order to actuate it. Um, they've got rid of that wacky LCD strip and the little roller the roller wheel that you push down. And instead, you move a cursor around using a, a four-way or actually five-way little um, joystick. I don't like it. Um, it's smooth on the top. And I can't push it to the sides with my thumb. It's too smooth. So I have to kind of like get my thumb off onto the side and push against mm. one side. I, I hope, mm. you know, that that's unfortunate. Maybe someone will come up with a little sticky cap for it or something. Mm. Uh, it really needs that. Um, but the one interesting bit 
I didn't expect the text-to-speech to be at all, like, useful or good, and it actually is. Here's, here is my Kindle uh, reading from the, the book I'm currently reading uh, called uh, The Chip, which is the introduction or the invention of the monolithic integrated circuit. I just want to point out while you're holding it up that uh, Andy Anako said, and now that I see it. Texas Instruments. Texas Instruments today, largely because of Jack Kilby, is a global semiconductor giant, one of the world's leading manufacturers of microelectronic devices. In 1958, though, it was just beginning to make a mark in the electronics business. The company had been born in the mid-20s wow. as the Physical Research Corporation. That's completely listenable. I know. I mean, it, it really That's is. completely listenable. Now, I just want to say something. Hold that up again for those who are watching at home. Uh, turn it around. Andy Anako said, and now that I see it, I, I completely agree. If you flip the other side, the metal side, he said it looks like it's an iPod designed for Andre the Giant. And he's exactly right. It looks like something Apple. It does look much prettier. Well, and even the packaging, when you see it, is look. It looks like you know, uh, very Jobsian in yeah. packaging. They went really over the top in terms of the way they package the thing. It's like okay, you know, this is very familiar looking. We're going to turn um, you into an audiobook listener, though, because I'm, you're right. I'm, that's pretty listenable. Yeah, I mean, you could if you if you. We're reading and you wanted to continue that experience while you're in the car. It works. And in fact, one thing's really funny. It can't say its own name. What, what does well. it say? It, it's like, it, it, uh, um, uh, let, me, let me go there. <laughs> you'd, think oh. they would have, you'd think they would have fixed that. <laughs> exactly. It reminded me. Do you remember the, the movie uh, The Colossus, The Forbin yeah, Project? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I love that they gave They gave Colossus a voice. And... It was interesting because there was one there was one word that it conspicuously did not pronounce well. And I don't funny. remember if it was like human right. or something, but it was like if you know, and then all humans will be able to you know, it's like, whoa, you know. Um okay, so now, the, here, the downside on this it is still very expensive. It's three hundred and fifty nine dollars. But if you travel a lot or you carry books with you all the time, you you are always going out with your books. This is such a boon. Is okay, it so too here, hard to turn the page? So here's... No, no. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Okay. So here is the Kindle reading its own uh, hello to the Kindle uh, book that okay. it comes with. Thank you for purchasing Amazon Kindle 2. You are reading the welcome section of the Kindle 2 user's guide. I guess that's not bad. That's not bad. Finds an overview of Kindle 2 and highlights it's a just few too, and the, But the, I noticed a lot of words are like that. that they're cut. They're clipped. Yes. It's almost they go to the next word too fast. To turn to the next page, press one of the next page buttons. If your Kindle was a gift, you will need to register your device. Please look at the getting started instructions that came with your Kindle for information on registering your device. It's it's swallowing the word. That's what it is. Yeah. And, you know, Leo, what what strikes me is that the intonation is really good. I mean, it's it's sort of goes up and down at highs and lo- it has highs and lows. I mean, they clearly gave this thing some m- much more attention in the text to speech aspect of it than I, than I expected them to. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, no, the page turning is great. It is dramatically faster. They said 25 percent faster page uh, turning the page. I think it's much faster than that. I mean, it's no longer like I used to be. And I'm sure you were toward the end of the last sentence of the last um, line on the screen, I would hit the page turn knowing that I'd be able to finish reading it before we got to the new page. 
and that behavior will get washed away. Um, it's all, oh, also, um, many things they fixed. You can easily delete something from right there on the screen using now, now that we have left and right, thanks to this, this little joystick positioner, you're able to just push it to the left and it says, you want to delete this? And of course it goes off. It goes, if it's a book, it goes back to Amazon land, uh, where your library is archived. And if it's a periodical, it's just gone. And their default seems to be not to keep old back issues of periodicals, which I think is a mixed blessing. It, you had to use the content manager, which was sort of painful in the in the first version, in order to go in and like clean out all the oh, newspapers. So hard, yeah. It was really annoying. It took it was slow and took a yeah. long time. Now there's a menu option right there on the main menu to save this one. So if it knows it's a periodical, and so you could say save this edition. So my guess is that, and I again I only had it for one day, so I haven't seen this work, but that it, by default. It will replace, oh, that's good. you know, the next version of the New York Times with, right. with with the prior one. That's how it should be. You don't Unless want to read t- days old newspapers, right? And also that 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 marking feature was a, used to be really frustrating because it would only mark the page you were show, right. seeing, not the article. Now it marks the article. Oh, good. So it knows about that. It knows about article boundaries too. So anyway, I'm very pleased with mine. I have to say, I mean, I have such an affection. For the first version, I kind of picked it up this morning after I'd been using the the Kindle all morning at Starbucks, and I was like, "Oh, little Willie, I still kind of like him." You know, he was he was. You know, well, what are you going to do with that? You're going to keep it around as a, a spare? Or well, no, I got absolutely going to keep it around. It'll yeah. it, it's I have all the packaging and the original materials. This all goes into the the Master GRC archive because someday it'll you know in 30 years it'll be like, "Oh, look at that! Remember when we thought that was really cool?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, it's when we have, you know, automatic, you know, eyeballs that are that are uh, scrolling text on them or something. Well, knowing see, I always gave away all my old technology, but knowing now that uh, both of us kind of covet the old stuff and you're spending money on eBay buying it back. I think it's probably a good. idea. It's probably a good idea to keep this stuff just for. Well, and I got to say the fact that it is without a cover, that's a conspicuous, that's a conspicuous uh, fault. I think it is. I mean, it's. You want to take care of it. You don't want to scuff up and scratch up the the, the, the brushed uh, aluminum back. But the fact that it doesn't have any, even a cheesy cover, that, where you could buy a nicer one for yourself. It's like, oh, I don't know. That's, that, I think they made a mistake there. You know, I've got, you know, a couple covers coming. The the new preen one, I think, is the one I'll probably like because I think I, I, I like holding it without anything encumbering it. So I was always taking it out of the little book cover that they provided, but that's where I put it back to protect it. So anyway, I just, I think they, they made a, a great jump forward. This which, is, which case did you buy? Um, I got the, the neoprene one and yeah. I got the, the top of the line glove leather, the black leather. Um, and which are, which which are your, yeah, which are your thoughts right now? You, oh, neither have come yet. Oh, so you haven't seen them. Okay. So I haven't seen it. I'll, Give it to you next week. Good. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to remind our live listeners that uh, I'm going to be on uh, Maxwell's house tomorrow. uh, Yeah, tomorrow, Thursday uh, at 2 p.m. with Ray Maxwell. We're going to do a sort of a really fun walk down nostalgia memory lane talking about, uh, you know, our first experiences computing. I've had a lot of revelations as I've been relearning the PDP instruction set. I've got some fun stuff to share with our listeners for that. Um, unfortunately, 
non-live listeners, oh, wait, we decided we're going to make a podcast of it and, and just slip it in as an extra Security Now podcast. Yes. So, so even our regular listeners will be able to hear it, but not live. You'll yes. hear it later this week. We're going to tape it on a Thursday. So uh, tape. We're going to record it digitally on Thursday. Speaking of a walk down memory lane. <laughs> and uh, we will uh, post it probably a Saturday or Sunday. So this weekend you'll get an extra, just so you know, you'll get an extra Security Now uh, we'll, you know, this is 185. We'll number it 185A and uh, just dispose of it if you're not interested. But I have a feeling anybody who listens to uh, this show will be very interested in this trip down memory lane. Well, for people who don't know Ray, he's he's a tremendous wealth of knowledge oh, yeah. and experience, a neat guy. Yeah. And I think we're really going to have fun. I doing can't it, wait. So. I can't wait. Meanwhile, um, another sp- another success story was the subject uh, line. Uh, William. Jay Burlingame sent this. Um, He said, I got an SOS from my daughter this past Wednesday. Her system wouldn't boot, and she has yet to get the backup religion. She had the original recovery disk that came with her system, but it indicated it would restore everything to the way it was when the system was first delivered, sans critical data. She had financial data, pictures, my grandkids, homework, etc., that needed to be retrieved. I packed up my black bag and headed out to make a house call. I ran Spinrite in the recover mode. It took about an hour to complete. Although there were two unrecoverable errors on the Spinrite map, the system booted just fine and we were able to back up all her critical data onto an external drive. I don't recall which version of Spinrite I first purchased, but it was before the introduction of Windows. My first hard drive was a 5 megabyte that was an upgrade to my original IBM PC that came without any hard drive. It was a full five and a quarter inch height, full height drive and was quite heavy. I enjoyed the twit conversations with Leo. So William, thanks for sharing your positive spin right experience. <laughs> That's great. We just love spin. Everybody here uses spin right. Colleen, you know, and by the way, Colleen's now a full-time employee. Oh, yay. Uh, I heard that, that, that you were yeah. going to do that. That's great. She is, uh, you, we have converted her into a, she is your best evangelist. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, we hear things like, well, Spinrite did what it did. Right. It fixed the drive, but there were two sectors that were unrecoverable. Well, it, 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 it's painful. You know, I described <laughs> last week or the week before why even that is a tremendous benefit because Spinrite is able to give you all but a couple bytes, even of an unrecoverable sector. And in that, in that doing that, I'm pretty sure it's unique in history. Um, But I just think if, you know, again, I I recognize I'm not going to get non-owners to, to do preemptive use of Spinrite, even though people who once discover Spinrite then run it every well, about every quarter, maybe four times a year, three times a year. And in doing that, it's able to catch problems that are developing and fix them and or cause their sectors to be swapped out before you get to this problem of something critical being unrecoverable. So, you know, the one thing I notice is that so redundant about the emails that I read, the the testimonials, is it's Time after time, it's the system wouldn't boot. The system wouldn't boot. The system wouldn't boot because you know that's a you know that's our all or nothing sort of you see your life passing before your eyes sort of experience. But well before the system wouldn't boot, had Spinrite been run, it would have solved the problems that I mean preemptively before it got to the point that it wouldn't boot, and you'd have never had that problem, which can still cause problems. So anyway, I I recognize. That uh, 
you know, we'll, we'll convert people when, when their system finally gets into such bad shape that it will no longer boot. And, uh, and at that point, they'll be able to run SpinRap preemptively and, and use it as a tool that prevents them from having that problem in the future. Yeah. yeah no, Colleen's become the maintenance, SpinRap maintenance uh, queen here. She goes all over the place. Spin writing things. But uh, it's true, as the drives get bigger, this becomes more and more important. I mean, these drives, yep. I mean, think of all the error correction they're already doing. Well, right. and, and because they have so much valuable information on them now. Right. Stuff that, you know, like all, you know, his grandkids' homework in this case. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. We're going to talk about heating, ventilating, and air conditioning in just a little bit. HVAC. And uh, no, I'm kidding. HMAC. That's a different podcast. What does that stand for, HMAC? It's, it, it's hashed message authentication codes. Of course it is. Ah, yes. <laughs> and it's a vital part of crypto. So we'll explain, uh, Steve will explain it. I guess it's our last part really explaining uh, crypto in uh, just a second. But before we do that, I want to mention our friends at GoToMeeting. The folks at Citrix, we love those Citrix folks. We use GoToMeeting all the time. In fact, we're using it more and more. Um, they, they do go to my PC, of course, which is the ultimate remote access program and the core of go to my pc also runs go to meeting not remote access remote meetings web meetings now you might have tried other solutions we just ha- I, you know had to do a meeting the other day with a competing product from microsoft i was so underwhelmed or so spoiled with go to meeting go to meeting is fast it's easy to use uh it's very affordable you pay one low flat rate for as many meetings as you want as long as you want setup just takes a couple of minutes and there are no hoops to jump through for your clients. And I think that's really important. Um, so many of these other products require your clients to install software. They don't want to do that. With GoToMeeting, here's the deal. You can do it ahead of time. Once you've installed it, take a couple of minutes to install it. In fact, go to GoToMeeting.com slash security now, right now. You can install it for free and try it free for 30 days. Uh, once you've set it up, it'll know all, you know, it has your all your Outlook contacts. When you go into Outlook, you can say, I'm going to have a meeting with him, her, her, him, and him. All, anywhere in the world, you click those emails, you send them out an email with a, a special link, they go to it, and they, you know, instantly they're seeing your computer on their screens. Or, conversely, you're on a conference call, and you say, geez, you know, this is, I need to show you this. You really have to see what I'm talking about here. I can't describe this. So you say, go to gotomeeting.com, here's the meeting ID, instantly they're seeing your screen. They don't have to install any software. It's remarkable. Uh, by the way, uh, you know, th- this works Mac or Windows, uh, so it's cross-platform. Um, once once you've got, you know, you can show them the PowerPoint. You can be working on Windows. They can be working on a Mac, and you can show them a PowerPoint. You can even say, here's a here's a Windows program I want you to use from your Mac. They can, they can collaborate on documents with you. Great for training, great for sales, uh, great for productivity. I want you to try it right now. Absolutely free. Go to gotomeeting.com slash security now. You could try it free for a month. Show your clients. See see what their reaction is. By the way, this has built-in free VoIP and free voice conferencing as well. So it's really a complete solution. Go to meeting.com slash security now. I've tried all of them, and I keep coming back to go to meeting. There's just no question it's the best in the business. Go to meeting.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of the Security Now show. All right. HMAC. Yes. What is um, it? Okay. Well, this is the this is the final piece of sort of core component technology that we need to understand um, in order to be able to talk about in detail the most used 
security protocol of all time, which is SSL, that we all use every time we establish a secure connection with our browser to anywhere, to Gmail, to our bank, to PayPal. Oh, speaking of which, I forgot to add to my notes. Remember last week I talked about having found a my, my, myself having discovered a glitch in PayPal's login that allowed me to bypass the use of my security token, the football. Uh, and I, I guessed then that what I was doing was more than was the minimal necessary. And I was correct. If, if any time you are in eBay, uh, which doesn't require any sort of an authentication token to log into, and you, you, you leave eBay to go to PayPal to, for example, to, to pay for something uh, through a, an eBay link. You come to the PayPal login screen. You give them your your email address and password, or um, you know your your first stage login credentials. If you own and have registered any security tokens, you will then naturally go to the next stage, which is it's asking you for your tokens. Um, all you have to do is hit back arrow. You go back to the login screen. Now, the text says, you're already logged in. So the fields are grayed out that you filled in, and the, the button that used to say login now reads continue. So you click that, and you're into PayPal without having to authenticate using your security token. Not good. Pardon? Not good. What happened? No, no, I mean, it's not good. That, it's not, it's not good that you, <laughs> you don't woke have me to, up. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you know what happened? I, I, my Kindle came. And no I, kidding. I just stepped out for a moment to get it. Uh, <laughs> and then I come in and you say not good. And I went, what? So that is not a good thing. Um, and, I, and, no. we'll, and we'll open the Kindle after the show. I won't, I won't be distracted by opening it now. Okay, well. Uh, That's tempting. It Congratulations. <laughs> it's tempting. Oh, well, the, the, other, the other thing that they did that I thought was sort of was fun was it used to be that the Kindle would deliberately blank its screen when you turned it off. Right. And as we know, the screen technology absolutely doesn't require it. It's literally in that in that sense, it's like an Etch-a-Sketch. The Etch-a-Sketch, you know, after you've scraped the, the, the light gray dust off the back and so that it's black there, um, you know, it's. You know, it just sits there. The Kindle's the same way. So what I love is that the Kindle ships with a static screen of instructions Already about how it. to turn it off. Oh, that's clever. And then, and, But then, from now on, when you turn it off, you get one of those screensaver images that they used to only put on when the Kindle would, would put itself into sleep mode right. if, you, if you put it down. Now, it puts it up. And turns the Kindle off. Oh, so it's, cool. so you know it used to be that they would blank the screen to let get, get give everyone a sort of a warm fuzzy feeling that okay it's turned off now. Um, but now uh, they they deliberately put an image up there, so it's cool. Very cool. Okay, so uh, anyway, so I did I did verify the the minimal approach for logging in to PayPal from eBay. With that is a security dongle bypass. It works every time, and it's unfortunate because that's why you told PayPal you wanted a security dongle. Yeah. yeah. So, oops, oops, not good, okay. as you said, not good. <laughs> okay. So, message authentication codes. Um, 
we've talked about basically every other aspect of security except Max. Max MACs message authentication codes um, is sort of the the complement to security. That is, you know, as we know, you encrypt a message in order to obscure what its contents are. Um, but the but sometimes you don't want to encrypt it, or if you if you do want to encrypt it to uh, to hide it, you want to detect any changes. Now we've often talked about message digests, um, MD5, um, which we talked about you know weeks ago, having been weakened to the point where it's really no longer secure. SHA1, um, and then um, you know other types of message digests. Those are all hashes, and so the the traditional way, for example, of of verifying the integrity of a document, whether encrypted or not, is that you would run it through one of these digest functions, which cryptographically digests the content you're feeding through, and you end up with a essentially a token. A um, in the case of MD5, it's 128 bits. In the case of SHA1, it's 160 bits. The newer, stronger so-called SHA2 functions, which is what now what is being recommended, um, they're even longer. They're like 256, 512, 1024, you know, much longer. The length gives you more security, um, and their their newer modern design uh, has also enhanced their security. So we've also talked about cryptographic signatures, where the way you the way you sign a document is you hash it into one of these tokens that comes out of the digest function, then you, for example, if you want to sign the document, you would use your secret private key to encrypt just that token rather than the entire document. Because as we know, public key technology is really too compute intensive for it to be practical to sign the whole document or to, to, to encrypt the whole document. Um, and then in this case, you might want to sign it without encrypting it. So you sign, the, you, that is to say, you, you encrypt with your secret key just the output of the hash and append that to the, to the document. Send it to somebody. They apply the same hash function, mm-hmm. and then they, and, and that gives them that token. Then since they don't have your private key by definition, your secret key, they're not able to encrypt that but they did receive the the result of your encryption which they're able to decrypt with with your public key so now they've got they've decrypted the signature that you attached they can compare that to the hash they independently made and the and the logic is the only way those things will compare is if the document hasn't changed well, we know because we were talking about MD5 that, that if the hash function is weakened, that creates a problem. And and the problem is, and it's exactly what I just described, um, if the attacker has some control over the the creation of of the documents, and and this is still within relatively strict guidelines, but the point is since we're encrypting the hash's output if we can make modifications that cause the hash to give the same output 
then we're going to get a valid signature, even though the documents change. So that's a problem. Um, message authentication codes, properly designed message authentication codes, don't have this problem. And in fact, if in the case of security certificates, if they were signed using a, a properly designed message authentication code, then it turns out that due to the nature of message authentication codes, they are not as dependent upon the strength of the underlying hash. And that's really important. For example, um, an HMAC could be based on MD5. And I'll explain what an HMAC is next. It could be, but you could base it on MD5 even in its now weakened state. And you lose none of the integrity of what the message authentication code is authenticating, which is, not surprisingly, the message. Right. Okay, so um, cryptographic ciphers have been used in the past. We, we talked last week, or sorry, week before last, about a so-called CBC MAC, a, a cipher block chaining MAC, where you, would, you take blocks of the text and you encrypt it, and then you XOR the output with the next blocks of te- a block of text and encrypt it, and XOR that with the next block of text and encrypt it in a, in a never-ending chain until you get all the way done. The, the, the nice thing about that is that it's, it's a strong, it's a strong um, fingerprint, a strong signature for the, the text. However, you're using a cipher, and traditionally, um, hash functions are faster in software than block cipher functions. Also, software implementations of hash functions are freely available, whereas ciphers historically have been patented. Um, And it's only recently that those patents have expired. So ciphers have tended to be encumbered by intellectual property, whereas hashes have not been. And ciphers, as we know, have also historically suffered from export restrictions. Hashes never have, because hashes can't encrypt. They can only digest. So whereas ciphers can encrypt, and so they were they were unfortunately uh, qualified as ammunition and were uh, exporting them from the U.S. and other countries had been prohibited. So so there were some benefits that hashes had over ciphers. That is, there there are reasons that you you would you would prefer to use a hash function in order to generate a digest of a message than using a cipher. Otherwise, you could definitely use a cipher. Um, so some of this is sort of historical, but um, the, the crypto guys have looked extensively at the way um, hash functions are used in message authentication codes. And the idea is that you want to, you want to incorporate a key into the hash function. Notice that when I when I talked about the CBC MAC, where you use a cipher block chaining, you use any symmetric cipher to encrypt a block of text and then XOR the output of that with the input of the next block in this chain. Well, implicit there is that symmetric cipher. So, so the, the nice thing about a CBC MAC is that it's a keyed digest, meaning that the, the output that you get is a function not only of the digested content, but of the key. Whereas, for example, 
MD5 and SHA1, any of the standard hash functions, they're not keyed. They're just, you know, the, they're, they're just MD5. So, so the advantage of that is if you were just using it as a sort of a simple message authentication that, or like, you know, that a file had been modified. We talked about this, you know, in, in the case of websites where, where websites will post the MD5 and sometimes the SHA1 of, of a file that you download. The point is you're able to independently run the same function that they ran that they ran on on you know prior to posting the site on the server and verify that the output the reason you can do that is md5 is md5 is md5 anyone who runs something through md5 that runs the same thing through md5 is going to get the same output that's that's its benefit however there are there are instances where for example for authenticating a message where you want to have a secret key as part of this that is, you want to be able to say, here's the message, yet I want to prove that I signed this. So, so you, could, you could generate a random number and use the random number to key a keyed hash function that generates an output. Mm-hmm. Then you, you use your private key to encrypt that random number. And so now you send to somebody the document and the, the, the result of the hash function, they have the encrypted random number, which was used to sign the document to, to run the keyed hash function. They're able to decrypt it using your, public key and then if they apply the the keyed hash function using that as its key they'll see that it matches the only way that's possible is if you were the person who encrypted the key using your private key because in using your public key you're only going to get the proper result if if those if the public and private key match so there's sort of another way that you can see that all of this fits together so the question is, how do we turn a hash function, which is inherently unkeyed, MD5 or SHA1, they're not keyed. How do we turn them into something that takes a key? Well, the simple-minded way to, uh, to, you know, to think of it, the, the first thing people thought was, oh, well, let's just put the key at the beginning of the message or at the end of the message, you know, just sort of like add the key to the message. Since we know that any change to the hash function will result in a different output, if we put the, the, the key at the front of the message, then, then every time we change the key, we're going to get a different hashed output. It turns out that, unfortunately, the nature of hash functions makes that insecure, the crypto guys in analyzing this said, uh, that's not such a good idea. And then people said, okay, well, and the reason is we've seen that one of the, the main ways of exploiting hash functions is by, is by altering them in a way that changes their length, but not their outcome. That's exactly what we saw in this case of, of, the, uh, of the attack on MD5 with, with, the, with, the, with the chosen prefix in an in an md5 hash 
So so then people said, because they understood that length was the problem, okay, let's put the key and the length and then the message, glom them all together and digest that. It turns out that the crypto guys in analyzing this to death said, no, nah, that's not good either uh, because there's ways you can exploit that. And then they said, okay, how about if we put the key at each end? And it's like, well, okay, that's better, but we have, we have something that would really work because in, in pounding on this, the crypto guys saw what it was, that, like what advantage they had. And the advantage they had is they were able to, to see the output of the hash function. They were able to tell what it was. And in, in, you know, that gave them the leverage that they needed against the hashing function in order to make this work. So it turns out that if you, if you hash it twice with a couple tricks, that's the key. So specifically, the, this, this thing called an HMAC is now a formal standard hmm. because it's passed through all the, the crypto analysis. No one's found any sort of a problem with it. So here's what you do. I talked about when we were talking about hash functions in depth, the, the idea that a hash function, when this is when we were talking about MD5, a hash function tends to process its input in blocks that are larger than its resultant hash. That is, for example, both MD5 and SHA1 take 512-bit blocks. They, they, they take the digest 512 bits at a time and, and then run that through their algorithm. And every time through their algorithm, they result, it sort of gives them another state and then they take that state that's sort of like the like how far they process so far and then they take the next 512 bits and that state and run that through the algorithm and get another state an an, an intermediate state so the final result is 100 128 bits or 160 bits however long the the hash function um digest output is so to to securely key any hash function you you take the key and pad its length out um using um a a, a specific pattern of bits um what's been chosen for the first hash is hex 36 so you take essentially you 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 take hex 36 repeated out 512 bits and you XOR the key with that. So what so what that does is it sort of a, it gives the hash a good start for the first 512 bit block. You then process that and then continue to process the rest of the message. So essentially what it what this does is it takes the the the, the key you're giving it and this 30 this magic 36 hex that that tends to flip some of the bits of the key because we know that that's what XORing does. And when you, when you run the first cycle of the hash function, it, it initializes it to, after processing this 512-bit block, to a, to a strong state based on the key. Then you just run the regular hash over the rest of the content. Okay, you take that output... And you do the same thing. You, you, you take its output and 
you you take the same key this time you XOR it with hex 5 charlie 5 c and i'll talk about where those two values came from in a second so you do the same thing you take 512 bits worth of 5c in hex you XOR the key with that and initialize the hash function using that then you simply hash the result from the first hash so you've essentially nested hashes you're hashing the output of the inner hash that's your final mac the message authentication code and it is passed all crypto i mean people have pounded on it they cannot find a weakness they recognize why because they because of doing such weakness and analysis on hash functions they realize that getting the getting the result of the first hash is the key well by by masking that with the second hash making that first hash be essentially an intermediate value they have no access then to what is really going on and nobody's been able to break it and it is it is it is so strong that even a weak hash like MD5, where we've learned all this about it, it doesn't weaken the output of this at all. Cool. And so that gives us a, a keyed message authentication code. It is used in SSL. It is, it is very handy for communications. Um, you know, I'll be using it myself in my forthcoming CryptoLink product because keying a, a keyed Mac is a is a very strong way, much stronger even than uh, than as we saw signing the output of a non-keyed hash, which is where the vulnerability in the SSL certificates was created, right. because they were just using MD5. Now, which, when I use OpenPGP, it puts for and I use it all the time for authenticating message, verifying messages, not for encryption. It puts a hash string at the bottom. Is that an HMAC? I don't know. I've not looked at PGP yeah. enough to to look at the protocol. I would guess I mean, it is. I mean, I would, what what it's doing is it's 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 doing two things. It's it's verifying the sender uh, using the sender's public key, but also uh, verifying the message contents integrity. So it must be hashing the message, right? Well, yeah, but but again, just a standard digest, an MD5 would, would do that. Yeah, My yeah. guess is that it would. That they're using an a an HMAC, a keyed MAC. And they're keying it based on your private key, but I I don't know private key, not public key, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Um, we we will be looking at SSL in detail, and it sounds like looking at PGP would be a good thing too. Yeah, this is, I'm using Open PGP, but I think it uses the same standards as PGP. And then there's right. GNU Privacy Guard, which is uh, you know the that's GPG the, GPG, and that's that's what I use to implement Open PGP. <laughs> as confusing as that is. Well, if anybody is still with us, given where we've just gone, I think I think that was easy compared to understanding the nature of keyed uh, message digest. Yes. But these are super useful, very strong, and they are they are the final component that we hadn't talked about that we need to sort of lay down in order to understand to look at the SSL protocol. What is it that goes on every day when people hook up their web browser to a server remotely? How are they safe? How do they know they're safe? Right. We've talked about the certificate side. We haven't talked about the actual communications protocol side. And we're going to do that in a few weeks. Very cool. As always, Steve Gibson, uh, fascinating material. And if you put together this with the last few uh, sessions that we've done on crypto, you'd have a very strong basis in modern crypto uh, techniques, which is great. 
That's what we do here. That's what we do here. And a little bit of news thrown in. That's and all yeah, kinds of interesting. A little bit of news thrown in. Yeah. And a little ebook. And uh, I've been very good. Look at still sealed. Uh. <laughs> you know, it's kind of cute. I, I actually got two boxes and I and I uh, I didn't know which one was a Kindle. But I figured out this is the Kindle because down the side it says once upon a time. Oh, dot, I dot, know. Dot. So they, you're they, right. This is the Apple style of packaging inside here, I think. And I tried to open the box without breaking the little zipper because I thought, you know, I wanted it to keep it in like really pristine condition. Right. But they've glued it all down tight. So oh. you've got to pull the zipper in order to do that. So it's like, oh, oh that's okay. I did get my Patagonia case. This is the um, neoprene case. Oh, good. Yeah, but this, I don't know if this has the hooks because, right, the, the new Kindle has hooks that are go in the leather case, but this one looks like it's got a pouch. I can't. Well, I'll that's know. what I was that, actually. That's what I was expecting. I think I think those zipper cases are just they're just a case you slide it into. Yeah. The 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 ones that have like a foldable lid, a, a flap, you know, like a wallet. Um, those have those have elastic here. corners. Well, and this so has elastic corners. This has elastic. Oh, corners. it does. Yeah. So that's the uh, that's that's the mechanism. Because I also thought there were now there was some sort of hooking mechanism now on that. Nope they they, they pulled the buttons away from the edges so that you're uh, so that okay. all the corners are now available for 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 tying it down. This is nicely padded and uh, it's a little handle. I think this will be fine. Neat. Yeah. But I will be very interested in your lovely leather Cole Hahn case as well. <laughs> well, I'll show it to you last. Or I'll show it to you next week uh, when we talk. We'll do a Q and A next week, and uh, and then the week after we're going to talk in detail. About uh, given that nothing else really horrible or significant comes up, we always, you know, re- reserve the uh, reserve the right to to change horses here if something happens. Right. We're going to talk about uh, tuning Windows Auto Run so that you are able to run just exactly what you want and not anything else. That's very useful. That's a great one to do. We should mix. We should mix the you know the really hard academic math stuff like this, like today's. With uh, with useful pragmatic stuff, that's great to have a little bit of. I each. think so too, and yep. that's what the Q and A is great for. We cover everything. If you've got a question for Steve, you'd like to send along for next week's question and answer session, go to security. I'm sorry, grc.com/feedback, and there's a feedback form there, and you can submit a question. Uh, GRC is his site, the Gibson Research Corporation. That's where you find Spinrite. That's where you'll find all those great free tools like Shields Up and Wismo and Shoot the Messenger, Decombobulator, Unplug it. I can go on and on and on. All the free stuff he's writing. That's where the new crypto product will be. Perfect Paper Passwords is there. Also, oh, don't forget, I I kind of remind people. Uh, we we were talking on the radio show about WPA passwords. I yep. sent I sent people to grc.com slash passwords, and you can get that great sixty four character uncrackable WPA password, um, and and a new one every time you visit. You have Windows machines running there, right? Lots of them. Okay, because I got to say, Leo, this DNS benchmark utility that I'm working on, um, uh, it's going to be really significant. It's looking like there are a lot of publicly available free DNS servers that are a lot faster than ISP servers. Good. And this thing knows about them all. So you just run it from your machine and it tests all of the known publicly available DNS servers performance against all the ones you're using from your ISP shows you it ranks them and says, uh, you know, you switch your, your DNS to this and you're going to get this much more speed. 
Fantastic. It's really going to be very Fantastic. cool. We'll give it a big plug. Don't yeah, forget, now, cool. you're listening to this show. I hope you listened as soon as it came out. We're going to put it out a little bit early on Thursday to give you a little heads up that at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, Steve will join Ray Maxwell on our show, Maxwell's House, at live.twit.tv to talk about the old days of computing, the old days of programming, PDP, PDP-8, and more. That should and be a Leo, lot of fun. when every bit mattered <laughs> those were the days when you had to really program bear to the metal and you had to pay attention in memory and things like that that and that it, was when men were men and programmers are programmers and strode the earth and anyway it'll be fun 2 p.m pacific 5 p.m eastern on uh thursday uh, february 26th if you've missed it don't worry because episode 185a is the entire audio of that show so you'll be able to hear that and we'll put that out on saturday the 27th uh, or 828, I guess that is. Steve, great to talk to you. Oh, uh, have I left anything out? Oh, yes, transcripts available at grc.com. Uh, also, uh, 16 kilobit versions of this show. We now have the great wiki. The show notes are in there, too, at wiki.twit.tv. That's another great resource with links back to Steve's site. Uh, so we really wanted to make sure there was a lot of text, text-based support for all of this. Uh, because, you know, it's, it's not enough just to listen. you got to read. Too. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Leo. Always a pleasure. See you next time. On Security Now. Security Now.